My sermon this morning is titled, Not Ashamed. Came up with it just then, while we were singing that song. Actually, that was a special request of mine uh, for Dr. Brown, and I appreciate you singing along this morning, and hopefully you were impressed by the words there. Romans chapter number 1 is our text. Romans chapter 1, verses 14 through 17, we'll read in just a moment. Isaac Watts wrote the hymn, Not Ashamed, in the early 1700s. It's been a long time. He pastored a church in London, but in 1712, because of his failing health, he accepted the patronage of an English nobleman who underwrote his creative passion to write hymns. He continued to preach off and on, but had fairly poor health the rest of his life. He was frequently unable to leave the home at all. He generally wrote a new hymn to be sung for every single message that he preached. That's a lot of hymns. That's a lot of sermons. In fact, he published over 800 songs and hymns during his lifetime, many of which we still sing today. He actually wrote two songs called Not Ashamed. We sang the better of the two, in my opinion. He has written songs that we sing frequently, like I Sing the Mighty Power of God, a song at Christmas time that we sing, Joy to the World, O God, Our Help in Ages Past, and Even When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. He took for his text many passages of Scripture that use the phrase, not ashamed. It's not an unfamiliar refrain in Scripture at all. But the conclusion, I believe, is found for us in Romans chapter number 1. And in Romans chapter 1, Paul concludes his introduction with the pronouncement that he is not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. But he does not begin there. In the preceding verses, he actually gives us three I am statements to describe himself, statements that set the foundation for his confidence in Christ. So let's begin reading this morning in verse number 14. Paul describing himself to these Roman believers, most of whom he has probably never met in his life, says, I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. Verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. He begins in verse 14 by telling them, I am a debtor. I am a debtor. The glorious gospel, rightly understood, places the ransomed sinner in eternal debt to the Savior. Whether saved or lost, we stand with a debt that we cannot pay. In sin, the burden of our debt of iniquity enslaves us to the destruction of the flesh and to eternal punishment. And so, in Christ, we are freed from the bondage of sin and placed into the eternal service of our Savior. 
We could not possibly pay the debt of our sin, but Christ paid that price for us. And so in return, we see in Scripture many times that it is simply our reasonable sacrifice to live in service for Him. And certainly we could say that we are indebted to the Savior for our life. Specifically, having discovered the only way to be reconciled to God, the knowledge of the truth places a responsibility upon us to tell other lost sinners. You see, Paul doesn't say here, I am a debtor to the Lord Jesus Christ. He says that elsewhere, but that's not his point here. He says, instead, notice the words in verse 14. He says, I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. Put another way, in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 16, he says, For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. And this is the sentiment that he is writing to the Romans here in chapter 1, where he says, I am a debtor to all unsaved people who have not yet heard the glorious gospel message of salvation. An Old Testament story illustrates this truth for us. In 2 Kings chapter number 7, during the ministry of Elisha the prophet, the region of Samaria was besieged by the overwhelming forces of the Syrian Ben-Hadad. Right? I love the villains of the Old Testament because they always had names that you could really villainize. Right? And so Ben-Hadad is the evil Syrian king that comes with forces and surrounds the city. And so the Samaritans retreat into the walled city, and they are besieged for many, many months. And they are beginning to starve to death because this caused a great famine. And behind the city's safe walled fortifications, they were beginning to do desperate things to survive. We read about those things in chapter 6 of 2 Kings. Desperate things that mothers did unthinkable things with their own children. Desperate things where a donkey's head was worth 32 ounces of silver. Gross. Not only is that gross to us, a donkey was an unclean animal. And that's how desperate they were. And yet, on the brink of starvation, as the king sends a messenger to Elisha the prophet, who he's very annoyed with for what he perceives as having caused this famine when he predicted it. But on the brink of starvation, Elisha predicts that God was going to save them. It seemed somewhat preposterous as they were all ready to die. But outside the city, four men, as the scene shifts, were exiled by a loathsome disease. These men were lepers. And at that time, leprosy, an uncurable and yet contagious and loathsome disease that caused hideous boils and and disfigurement of their bodies. And so they were ostracized from the city. They were expelled and put out. And when everyone else retreated into the city, you know these guys were trying to sneak in with the crowd, and yet they were told, no! As desperate as we are, as dying as we are, you're still too nasty to be with us. 
and they shut them outside the city. And so these men are stuck. Imagine their predicament. The Syrian forces are surrounding Samaria. Now, when you're besieging a city, as most of you know, having done this many times, I'm sure, you want to stay a respectful distance from the walls. Why? Because inside the city, they have some range artillery. Now, at this time, that would have been most likely just bow and arrow. But that could be launched maybe 100 with effective fire, but maybe 200 yards with a lucky shot. And so that's where the camp would be. There'd be kind of a no-man's land in between where the walls were and where the enemy forces were camped. That's where these four lepers lived. In fact, the text kind of indicates that they were sort of huddled under the arch against the gates to the city. This was their only shelter, their only refuge. They were stuck between the city that didn't want them and the evil Ben-Hadad that was attacking them. Talk about a hopeless situation. Because not only is the clock running out for them as far as not having anything to eat and not having any shelter, they've got leprosy. And so it's a horrible, no-good situation. What are they going to do? Well, the Bible gives us, recounts for us, a little bit of their conversation. And one of the lepers says to one of the other lepers, you know, we're in a bad situation. And the other guy says, you don't say. We got, we got problems. You think you have problems. These guys had real problems, right? And they say, you know what we should do? They haven't got any food inside anyway, so let's, let's quit trying to get into the city. It's only worse in there anyway. So I tell you what, you know who's got food? Ben-Hadad and the Syrians. They got plenty of food. Let's go ask them if they'll give us any food. Now, what do you suppose the Syrians <laughs> would have done with four leprous Samaritans walking out from the, the shadow of the city walls towards their camp like emissaries and ambassadors? Because you know these guys would have pulled together all the pomp and circumstance that they could to walk out there, and they would have said, Hello, Syrians! We come in peace! <laughs> Just as the arrows start to wind right, right into them. There'd be a pincushion! This was, no doubt about it, a suicide march, right? No doubt about it. And so these Jewish lepers, ostracized from the city of Samaria, basically expelled by their own families and their own community, decided that it would be better to go out in a blaze of glory than to simply starve to death in the shadow of the city walls. And so they determined, we will just walk right up to the Syrians, and at least it will be a quick death. Okay. I mean, honestly, not a bad strategy if that's what you're after. And so, here they go, on a suicide mission, walking to the Syrian camp. They're certainly not going to take in and give wonderful hospitality to these Jewish lepers. Instead, what did they find? They found no Syrians in sight. In fact, they walked into the first tent because no one killed them. <laughs> and so they were like, well, we haven't been killed yet. Let's go into a tent. And they probably thought they would see a sleeping Syrian soldier. Ooh, that could alliterate. All right, that's very nice. 
And instead, what they find is a table prepared with food and all kinds of interesting treasures laying around the tent. And so the Bible says that all four of these lepers sat down and gorged themselves on all the food they found in the first tent. And then they picked up as much loot as they could carry, and they start carrying it out of the tent. And when they did that, they look over and they said, you know, that tent's even fancier than this tent. Let's go check it out. And so walking over, they say, well, I got too much stuff. All right, well, let's bury it. So they, they get down in the sand, and they buried some treasure, and then they covered it up. And they, they know they're about to be killed at any time, right? And so they're like, well, I'm not full yet. Hey, let's go to the next tent. And they walked into the second tent. And the same situation, only now it's even better food. It's like Italian night or something. And they said, this is great. And so they ate again. And they said, they got even better loot. And so they got all the loot and they, they went and they buried it. And somewhere in traveling from tent to tent to tent, in finding no Syrians, and yet all of their armor and all of their loot and all of their food, somewhere along the lines, one of these leprous Jews grows a conscience. And he says in verse number 9 of 2 Kings chapter 7, Then they said one to another, We do not well this day. I don't know. I think they were doing pretty well. (laughs) Certainly better than they thought it was going to turn out. We do not well this day. This day is a day of good tidings. And we hold our peace. If we tarry till the morning light, some mischief will come upon us. Now therefore come that we may go and tell the king's household they realized that this good news that they now knew would save the lives of many of the poor souls trapped in the city. This good news or gospel that they experienced created for them a responsibility to tell others who were still in a lost and desperate condition. You say, but wait a minute. Those people don't deserve that good news. They treated me really poorly. They expelled me from the city. They put me out. They they considered me just dead. They said, we'd be better off if you were just dead. That's the people that somehow I have an obligation and a responsibility to? I don't think so. And so you could certainly see that that attitude would be perfectly reasonable. And yet that's not the response. They said, wait a minute. No matter how they treated us, even though we still have an incurable disease that we will die from, we have an obligation to tell our families, to tell the king's household, to tell those lost, trapped souls who will die today if we don't give them this good news. They said, we do not well. You see, that's what the Apostle Paul is saying here when he says, I am a debtor. I am indebted to those who do not yet know the gospel that I know. And so he says in verse 14, I am a debtor. But he says in verse 15 then, he says, I am ready. I'm ready. He says, verse 15, so as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. 
Paul asserts here that he is ready in the sense that he is both willing and predisposed to do what God has called him to do. Readiness really has four components to it, biblically. Readiness. If you're going to be ready to do what God called you to do, there's really four aspects to readiness from God's Word. Number one, you've got to recognize what God has called you to do. And that's not easy sometimes. If you're not sure what God wants you to do with your life, can you at least be sure what God wants you to do today? Can you get busy doing what you need to be doing today and let the future unfold? Let the Lord direct the steps of a good man? Let him order your steps one by one. And as you put one step with another step with another step, it begins to make a path, a trajectory in life. Make good decisions today, and that is what's going to help unfold the future for you. God has no intention of telling you in some flash of lightning, here is what your life is going to be. And if you had the idea, sitting in college today, that somehow you do know what your life is going to look like, you better buckle your seatbelt because life has some twists and turns. I have some bad news for you. I'm a little further down that road, and I can look back and realize, okay, general direction, I kind of knew what God wanted me to do, but I had no idea the twists and turns. But your readiness has to do with a willingness, a predisposition, a telling God yes, even before you know what he's asking of you. Have you ever been willing to do that? Have you ever told yes, told God yes, told God whatever, Lord whatever? That's what it means to surrender. That's what it means to yield your life to the Lord's control. So recognize what God called you to do. Number two, submit to his calling. Dedicate yourself. Surrender to his will. It's one thing to say, Lord, whatever you want me to do, I am willing to do it. It's another thing to maintain that sense of submission when you find out what it is he wants you to do. Because there are in life sometimes unsavory, unhappy, could I say it that way, tasks and responsibilities that God will give to you. There are some deep waters that God will ask you to go through for his glory. People say all the time, how could this bad thing happen to this good person? Because God trusted them. Because God trusted them to handle that trouble in a way that would glorify him. One of my co-workers at Christian Law Association had a son with cystic fibrosis, which is a pretty cruel thing to have because it comes on mostly with children and parents suffer with their child as they struggle for every breath. It crystallizes the lungs, and their lungs don't have the flexibility that they need. If you've ever known someone who, who suffers with CF, it's a very, it, suffering is a very apt word. And his son actually went through a double lung transplant. And I'm happy to say that even today, he's serving the Lord faithfully as a family. God's blessed him with a, a much longer life than most people with this disease ever enjoy. And Zach said to me one day, 
with his testimony of all of that that he had gone through, he said to me one day, you know, I'm convicted. Why doesn't the Lord trust me with more trouble? And I thought that was the stupidest thing I'd ever heard a smart person say. Like, what are you asking for? But I was young and, and kind of stupid myself. And I think I understand what he was saying is that God trusts us with trouble and it's up to us. We must remain dedicated. We must trust him that he is accomplishing something bigger than us and trust him as we go through trouble. Number three, you must prepare yourself. If you are going to say that I am ready to do what God's called me to do, then you must prepare yourself through education and mentorship and experience and practice. Happily, that's why you're here. (laughs) And that's part of what we're doing, is helping you to prepare. But notice the last thing I said there is practice and experience. We can't do the job of preparing you to be a leader in the local church in the world to glorify God with the rest of your life if you don't start practicing what we're preaching to you. You've got to get out in the local church and spread your wings a little bit, and it may not be real artful at the beginning. I've worked with young men over at Calvary on Wednesday nights for many years to help prepare lessons for rally time on Wednesday nights. And we bring in, you know, 20, 30 different kids from first grade to third grade, and then 30, 40 kids from fourth grade to sixth grade. And we worked together for many years to prepare lessons. And it was always kind of funny, like the very first one, right? We say, now listen, we got 20 minutes for this time. So be careful, don't go over. That was never the problem, right? <laughs> These guys would get up. And they would preach everything they knew from Genesis to Revelation in a minute and a half. has come off the clock. And they're looking at me like panicked. And they say, well, at this time, Dr. Davis is going to come and summarize and wrap up our time together. And I'm like, okay, we've got 18 minutes left. All right, this is great. Uh, Father Abraham, no, we never do that. Never, never. Deep theology in that song. What in the world? Don't ever sing Father Abraham. Let's see, you're learning things today already. But you've got to practice, and it's okay. It's okay to be a little awkward with it or to feel a little bit like, I don't know what I'm doing. This is the time to practice. And you have great mentors around you that would love nothing more than to help you. And then, number four, in order to be ready, you've got to follow through and do it. Follow through and do it. Prior to embarking on the first missionary journey, did you realize that the Apostle Paul prepared for 10 years after his conversion on the road to Damascus? He surrendered, he studied, and during that time he served. Many of the polished messages that we have recorded for us in the book of Acts and in his his, uh, epistles came out of what God had taught him during a period of preparation. This is a delicate balance Paul here expresses his willingness to come to Rome, but it would actually be many years before he would be able to follow through on that desire. Elsewhere, he describes the fact that it was actually the Holy Spirit that prevented him because the time was not yet right. He says that in verse number 13 of this passage and many others as well. So, don't get overly anxious. There's this thing thing called senioritis. 
and sometimes freshmen get it, <laughs> right? Don't give up. Don't get overly anxious. You need to be prepared. If it's worth doing for God, it's worth doing well. I hope that you've learned that already here at Maranatha. And so, don't get overly anxious. Wait for God's timing with a willingness to act when you have the opportunity. And then we come to the text this morning, the text of the the hymn that we sang, and we find that in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. This is a persistent theme throughout the Bible, and Watts' hymn actually references several of these passages. Let's examine in the time remaining what it means to be not ashamed from a biblical perspective. And so first, we must recognize the source of our shame. You see, shame was not our created state. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 25, referring to the condition of Adam and Eve in the garden, it says, And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Adam and Eve enjoyed perfect fellowship with God in the garden. So what brought shame into the world? Sin's curse brought shame and death into the perfect creation. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6 says, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons to hide their shame. We see here that sin brought shame into the world and breached the fellowship that God designed and created humans to enjoy. And so, the source of our shame is sin. But, on the cross, Jesus Christ paid sin's penalty and removed the cause of our shame. The verse in the hymn says, I'm not ashamed to own my Lord or to defend His cause, maintain the honor of His word, the glory of His cross. And so we find in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Here we understand the meaning of, of our primary text this morning that declares the gospel through Jesus Christ has removed our shame and restored our fellowship, not only with God the Father, but with other believers of every race and tribe. And that's why we can look around this morning and see people from all over the world gathered together, serving the same God under the banner of the same cross. So how can I hesitate to share the gospel with others. How can I say no to anything the Savior would ask of my life? We see as well that Christ, as King, has conquered death and secured our standing at the judgment. The hymn says, Firm as His throne, His promise stands. And he can well secure what I've committed to his hands till the decisive hour. What do you suppose is meant by the decisive hour? 
Well, 2 Timothy chapter number 1 and verse 12 says, For the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. That day. That day of judgment. We often think of shame in the sense of fear. Fear of the future. What will become of me? Will I be disappointed? Will I discover that my life has been uselessly devoted to a false cause? What a shame. Will I be ashamed at the judgment that all men must face? Never. Christ the King has removed any doubt or fear that I am living an unrewarded life. And so Christ has conquered death and secured my standing at the judgment. We see as well that God's Word is what gives us hope for living in victory through life's trials. The song says, Jesus, my God, I know His name. His name is all I trust. Nor will He put my soul to shame, nor let my hope be lost. These words come primarily from references in the Psalms. Psalm 119 in particular. Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible. I'm sure you all have it memorized. It's devoted specifically to the Word of God. And the Bible says in Psalm 119, verse 6, Then shall I not be ashamed when I have respect unto all thy commandments. Verse 46, I will speak of thy testimonies also before kings and will not be ashamed. Verse 80, let my heart be sound in thy statutes that I be not ashamed. Verse 116, uphold me according unto thy word that I may live and let me not be ashamed of my hope. You see, God's word gives us the basis that we can stand with confidence and not be ashamed. And then we see in closing that because of my standing in Christ, God the Father is not ashamed of me. What? It says in our hymn, Then will he own my worthless name before his Father's face. And in the new Jerusalem... Appoint my soul a place. Hebrews 11, verse 16 is the source of Watts' words. It says, but now, this wonderful hall of faith describes it this way. They desire a better country, that is, an heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. Can you even fathom, God is not ashamed of me? The thought is truly too much. I am worthless. I've done nothing to merit his grace. God has prepared a place for me in eternity? I can never be lost again? I can never have a reason to be ashamed before him? The fact that the Bible describes God 
as our Heavenly Father, I hope, gives us some sense of this. Because in our families, we can never not be a part of our family. And so we find that as I stand in the righteousness of Christ, and as a son of God myself, I forever have a place in God's future glorious kingdom. That, that is a life worth living. That is a glorious hope to live in triumphantly. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hymns that we can sing that are so richly infused with the scriptures. And Lord, it is too much to think that you have offered to us the glorious hope of salvation and that we can stand secure knowing that even in the judgment day, that fearsome day, we can stand not ashamed and that you will reward us for what small and piddly acts of faithfulness that we're able to muster throughout our lifetime only and, and always through the strength and power of the Lord Jesus given to us by the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we thank you for that, but help us to be encouraged this morning with the responsibilities that we do have, that we must respond to the Holy Spirit's leading, that we must respond to the opportunities that are presented to us to share the gospel to those around us, that we must prepare and be willing and dedicated to the life that you have before us, whether those be the, the triumphs or the trials. And Father, someday when we are reunited with you in glory, that we can stand at your side as a redeemed son of God. And that someday we as well, even in your holy, righteous presence, will be unashamed. And for that, Lord, we thank you and we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.